Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. is Mike Fader. Before we get started today, um, since this is the worldwide net, people uh, listen everywhere, um, I'm interested uh, in hearing from anybody who listens to the show in another country, uh, wherever you are. So get in touch with me. You can go to my website, uh, Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, and there'll be a way to get in touch with me that way. So uh, let me hear from you if you're uh, out there somewhere. Uh, an ex-American, or if you just live in some other place. And tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, as for today, um, I'm sure that everybody who watches TV or watches sports or reads the papers or you're all hooked up to the Internet, uh, you see there's a lot of headlines these days about sports. Sports has wandered from the sports page, and um, 
made itself front page news, uh, especially because, and particularly because it's finding itself enmeshed in politics. So today I want to focus on all these political protests in the National Football League, and which may expand as um, other seasons get underway. And, of course, inevitably, Donald Trump uh, horning in and pouring gasoline on the flames. And to help us take a look at this issue, we have a guest, a longtime sports writer, novelist, and television host, Robert Lipsight. Thanks for coming on today. Glad to be here, Mike. Uh, let me introduce you a bit to the listeners, okay? Um, Robert Lipsight is a longtime sports reporter and columnist for the New York Times, and author of more than 20 books. His books include the recent memoir, An Accidental Sports Writer, Sports World and American Dreamland, and Dick Gregory's autobiography, Nigger. His best-selling novels for teenagers include The Contender and One Fat Summer, and his on-air television career includes CBS's Sunday Morning with Charles Kuralt, the NBC Nightly News, and the nightly public affairs show, The Eleventh Hour, for which he won an Emmy Award as a host. He was also the ombudsman for ESPN in 2013-2014. So you see his credentials for sports and the sports business. Uh, right before we talk about this, let's see if we can get a little piece of Mr. Trump talking about uh, football. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! You know, some owner's going to do that. He's going to say, that guy that disrespects our flag, he's fired. Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, uh, anything to say about Mr. Trump at the moment here? Well, I was personally blown away by the brilliance of that. I, I thought that he, he just turned something that was valuable uh, around to make it a, another ego test for himself and uh, a kind of uh, signifier of, of uh, false patriotism. I mean, you know, go back to why anybody uh, on a football team kneels at this point, and it's a, uh, it's a protest against uh, racism, against police brutality, um, and he has made it something else, and the way he's done it is standing up to those uppity black guys mm -hmm. who are making millions of dollars a year to entertain us. Um, I, I thought it was just kind of a, a stunning piece of theater and, of course, distracted us uh, from everything that's going on uh, as, as the country is sinking into the sea. Well, that's uh, the perfect summation for the guy. I mean, he um, <clears throat> he manages. He does have a genius. Genius is the right word for that. I mean, it's a, a nasty, petty, evil genius, but it is pulling us all down. Um, so they, he's he's part of this story, and uh, the protest is part of this story. 
Maybe we could go back and, um, you know, there, for people who aren't aware of this, if you, uh, you don't have to be um, a football fan or watch football on TV to read these things on the front page. Uh, so what's happening is a lot of uh, players in the NFL, week after week, have been uh, sitting down or not appearing on the field for the Star Spangled Banner. And, uh, or they are appearing on the field and locking arms with other players and sometimes some owners, which was uh, strange, in solidarity for, with the uh, kneeling or absent players. Um, there is a rule, by the way. There's a, I don't know how, how they enforce it or if actually they're not enforcing it. There's a rule in the NFL that you have to appear. If you're a player, you have to appear on the field, but obviously not enforcing it. So how did this protest start? It started last year with one person, right? Yes, it did. And I, I think that, um, and, I, and I think that, you know, what I'm holding my breath about uh, is whether this is some sort of athletic spring. Uh, hopefully not the product spring, but some sort of athletic spring in which we will finally see, you know, athletes who are not in a very good position. Most of them don't have guaranteed contracts. They have a short shelf life. And going back to last year when this part of the protest began, uh, we see how you get slapped down. Uh, a, a quarterback, a good, a good but fading quarterback on the San Francisco 49ers named Colin Kaepernick, a biracial uh, quarterback. I mean, he's, everybody says he's black, but, you know, he's, he's black and white, and he very quietly sat down in a preseason game last year, and then a day or, you know, game or so later took a knee during the national anthem, and he made it very specific when he was questioned that he was making a personal uh, protest against police brutality against blacks, about the shooting of unarmed black men by white policemen. Mm-hmm. It was kind of grew out of Black Lives Matter and his own longtime association. Uh, by the end of the season, uh, he uh, was out of a job. Uh, he's um, well. That's part. He's not been able to get back into the league. Now that you say that's partially that's partially because uh, I mean people have to be objective. They they say well then he was not doing so well or he was fading. You mentioned that before. Right, but I think that you know as as pure football experts have pointed out, uh, and I'm not one of them, but I mean people who really know the game, at the least. He could have been hired uh, as a backup quarterback for one of the 32 other uh, quarterbacks who are starting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he certainly has those credentials. He's 29 years old. He's got a strong arm. Uh, he could fit into a pattern very quickly. So it was, it was very obviously a kind of political blackball. And uh, it, it came at a time when there was... The faint rumblings of protest, uh, particularly in the National Basketball Association, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a far more progressive league, both at its top and among its players. Uh, the two of the biggest stars, LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, kind of made small demonstrations uh, about their solidarity with Black Lives Matter and the need uh, for racial protest at this time. But nothing much came of it. 
until this year, until this season, um, when Trump kind of uh, uh, stimulated the whole thing by, you know, calling players sons of bitches uh, and and. But he was doing kind that. Tapping into uh, his base's feeling. I've talked right. to a lot of Trump supporters in the last few weeks, and and those who are sports fans really do have this kind of sense that, you know, what are these ungrateful right. millionaires complaining about? They're black. They're poorly educated. They're making millions of dollars just to go out there and play a kids' game for us. Uh, what's the big fuss? I think that uh, particularly in football, where there are far fewer um, well-known characters. In basketball, you, you see them so clearly, mm-hmm. uh, and they stand out. But in football, they're wearing you know, all that paraphernalia, and they're almost cartoon figures on the TV screen. We don't really know who most of them are, except for the quarterbacks, most of whom, of course, are white. Uh, and but but uh, Trump, that Trump's reaction, I'm sorry, Trump's reaction came after there was, uh, when the season started, I don't know about the preseason, but when the season started, I don't watch football, but uh, when it started, then there were, immediately, there were more protesters. And he, he responded after that, correct? I mean, he, he saw, yeah, like you but said. again, yeah. Again, Mike, it, it was a it was a very mild. It was really a very pacific oh. uh, protest. These are just a couple of guys, you know, who took a knee or didn't put their hands on their heart. Um, it, it was not what we saw last week. The the mass locked arms, which so, was, you know, of course, response to Trump. Now there was a, a lot of talk about. Um, actually, this is there's a history to. Political protests, um, especially by black athletes, and it's not, it's not very uh, widespread, to say the least. But the first time in my life I ever saw, I think we're of an age, the first time in my life I ever saw that and was, and was on a national, rather an international stage, was at the Olympics. I think it was in Mexico City in 1968, right, with, uh, right. The, with the two runners. Maybe you could ex- talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I was I was there, oh. and I I must tell you, Mike, I I was faintly disappointed uh, by that protest. Uh, two black athletes uh, who had just won uh, gold and bronze medals uh, in in a sprint uh, stood on the platform and raised their black uh, gloved fists in hmm. what was then considered the Black Power Salute. And uh, this is 1968, as you pointed out. It was that the hard year, uh, all the, you know, the terrible and violent things that were happening in America and in, in Vietnam, around the world. And, and, and the assassination. The, the, mildest, the mildest protest of the year. Mm-hmm. But what happened, uh, they were immediately thrown off the U.S. Olympic team, uh, and they were sent away. For, they were they were deported from Mexico City. Hmm. Uh, the names were, of course, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, and and their protest was not only against racism and uh, you know the and the war, but it was it was against a very specific incident, uh, which had really started all of. 
this was when Muhammad Ali in 1967 refused to step forward uh, to be drafted. Right. He was immediately stripped of his heavyweight title. You know, no new due process. No, he was just he was just banned from boxing as it turned out for three and a half years. So what happened was um, athletes understood very quickly. Uh, that they were not in a good position for protest. Muhammad Ali lost three and a half of the most probably productive years of his boxing career. Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who had raised their fists at Mexico City, uh, really were unemployable. Uh, these are you know, great Olympic athletes. They were unemployable uh, for years and years. Everybody understood that you can't go up against Whitey. You can't go up against the power. And so what we got instead was Michael Jordan, uh, the the world's most expensive model, uh, a man who, uh, when asked why he wouldn't, you know, uh, at least speak for a black candidate in his home state of North Carolina against a racist candidate, said, Republicans buy sneakers, too. Hmm. Wow. So uh, it, it's been so many years, uh, you know, going on close to 50 years of a quiet uh, rumbling within sports, the occasional athlete now and then who might not stand for an anthem in basketball uh, or might, you know, quietly say something. Uh, but this really... Uh, starting with Colin Kaepernick last year, was the start of something really fresh and new and came right out uh, of Black Lives Matter and, again, of Donald Trump. Now, a lot, a lot of these, um, <clears throat> now, now I was uh, thinking about uh, Muhammad Ali, which was, and that was, he was actually quite a hero to a certain group of people in America, you know, people who were against the war and people who were, uh, fighting for civil rights, but um, the uh, the reaction for Trump. And Trump, it's always the same thing. As you mentioned earlier, uh, he goes to his base. Whenever Trump wants to get uh, a really rousing reaction to uh, to what he's doing and to get his ego stroked, which he seems to need twenty four hours a day, he goes. You know, uh, he calls it a campaign uh, campaign speech, although I don't know why he's on the campaign now, but I guess he's eternally on the campaign. Then he goes to where he knows he's going to get thousands of people. You heard in that little clip, people are chanting USA, USA, which is always scary when I hear people chanting it en masse like that. It, uh, <laughs> it, uh, it brings up in me, since I've studied history so much and seen films of uh, Nazi Germany, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, Sig Heil, Sig Heil. It just reminds me of that. But he goes where he, he's going to stir things up. And um, he does, like you say, have an instinct for the jugular. And they, they've done polls, and they've uh, interviewed a lot of people who are football fans. And um, um, the majority of them are, they don't, they don't want to see this. They don't want to hear it. And I, I wonder if, um, now the people who go to, to the games, these tickets are very expensive, right? Yes. Yeah. So you go to you have season tickets. You go to the games, but it's different than the seventy million people or something like that who watch on TV. And um, so the people who go to the games, when they asked a lot of them, most of them said um, they didn't like it. It doesn't have any place on the field, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm assuming most of them are white. This breaks down into a racial thing. I mean, they haven't polled the seventy million people 
you know, who are watching on TV. So um, it's it's it comes down to the fact. And also, by the way, Trump is um, you notice he's disinvited the Golden State Warriors and Stephen Curry disinvited right. them. Yeah, they were supposed to show up at the White House, right? Right. The Golden State Warriors, of course, were the defending champions of the National Basketball Association, um, were already not so sure they wanted to go. And their star, Steph Curry, uh, had, had said that he would probably not go to the White House. And quick response to that, you know, Trump disinvited them. We don't want you anywhere. You know, um, I, I, I think that he also had... Not only, you know, is he so brilliant in, in throwing red meat to his, you know, quote, base, um, he also finds a vulnerable po- population. And, it, you know, sports, sports is tender. Sports is vulnerable. Uh, one thing that I found in my time as ombudsman at ESPN is how many sports fans, you know, really consider sports uh, a, a kind of sanctuary mm-hmm. from the real life. It's a place where, you know, and I always imagine them, uh, these families, you know, holding hands, going into the family room uh, to watch football together in a place where they felt that there would be nothing threatening. Mm-hmm. There would be nothing they would have to think about in, in any kind of moral or intellectual way. And bang, here it's being thrust in their face. Um, that their, you know, quote, heroes, I think just kind of their avatars, really, Mm -hmm. uh, are making them think about something that intrudes on the sheer pleasure of the game. On the other hand, I think that this is coming at a time when football itself is under terrific siege as we're finding out more and more just how damaging the game is you know, to the health of the player uh, and especially uh, to, uh, to their brains, uh, something that the National Football League has very carefully over the years tried to suppress. I mean, it really, there's a thread of denial here that goes from climate change to tobacco, you know, to the National Football League. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, smashing your head against somebody else, that, that's not going to hurt at all. You know, just walk off that concussion. But the point is that so many of them are so damaged, and they were damaged because the information that they needed was kept from them. So um, the the league itself is really in a tough spot. Uh, People are making moral judgments. People are not watching football as much as they were. Uh, And now, all of a sudden, this idea that some of the players are discontent uh, politically uh, is is kind of a shattering blow. And that's why the owners locked arms last week. I don't think we're going to keep seeing that happen. Right. But I think at the moment, with a new contract, a collective bargaining contract coming out, with the fear that there will be even more and uh, more aggressive lawsuits against the league, I think that the word that you know we keep seeing is unity. The locked arms is not a political gesture, they say. It's not about racism. It's about unity within the football family. Well, it's really, uh, once again, about money. Mm -hmm. Big business, right. 
Well, I, I was yeah, reading. I, I was reading in the Times today that um, the contracts, the TV, the TV, and the advertising contracts, which is where they get most of their money, the teams um, and National Football League, I guess. Uh, I don't know how the money is shared, but they're locked in for this whole coming year. The contracts are signed, so they are going to make money no matter what this coming year. It's it's going to be reflecting what happens the next time around if people get turned off. I mean, some of the teams have heard from regular fans that they're burning their uh, jerseys, they're um, they're canceling, uh, they're turning in or canceling or whatever it is. They're not going to use their uh, their uh, you know season tickets, but. Um, like you say, it's business. The bottom line, it's big business. And all of sports is this way. I mean, the NBA season is going to start, or I don't know, has it started, or it's going to start. And uh, for a couple, Yeah, within a couple of weeks, yes. And as you pointed out, there's probably going to be, it'll be fascinating to see the, the I, don't, I forget his name, but the commissioner of the uh, National Basketball Association, he said that he... You know, I think he said something like he expects people, you know, it's a sign of respect, et cetera, et cetera, to stand for the national anthem. And like you say, it's going to be more dramatic if people don't because, you know, you're right up and close watching, you're seeing their faces. They're not covered by masks or anything like that, and you know who they are. I mean, I wonder what will happen with that. But I wanted to expand this a little bit. Sports in general is always very conservative. It's always been very conservative. The owners... Uh, I don't know about the players, but the owners, a lot of the fans who go there, and I remember this, uh, and the announcers, too. I mean, the announcers, and like the National Football League, you know, I watched a couple of games last year, and I might watch a couple. The, you know, in the last several years, there's been more and more of this patriotism everywhere, and you see these giant flags covering the whole field uh, at every game, uh, Take a, and even like in baseball, there are members of the military there who are being honored. And, you know, no disrespect to anybody in the military, but this is more and more of this, um, like, wartime patriotism. Wartime patriotism. And you get this more and more. Hockey seems to me to be the most conservative. And, um, I don't know, maybe baseball after that. But uh, there's more and more of this flag waving. And I remember the trouble during Vietnam when I went to a couple of games. Uh, if you didn't stand up, you risked being beat up. You know what I mean? If you wanted to protest in the stands anyhow. It was really, but it's it's this whole idea of patriotism and business, and uh, it's merging now. You know. Yes, I mean you're absolutely right. I mean, there's nothing new here. I mean, as you point out, uh, it's it's just, of course, because of uh, you know modern media, it's it's much more vivid than it ever was. But sure, I, I remember uh, at base, covering baseball games during the Vietnam War. You know, there were there were fights in the stands. Right. Remember the hard hats and the long hairs. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know now the hard hats wear long hair, but. Um, it, it was always used. Patriotism has always been used, and certainly used to sell games. I mean, it's always so interesting to, to realize how much the armed forces pay uh, football, and to, I think, a lesser extent, baseball, to stage some of these, uh, what are basically recruiting drives. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the constant combination and and the way of sports hiding behind the flag, which probably started during World War II uh, to justify that there were games going on uh, while people were dying uh, in, in, uh, in Asia and uh, Europe. Uh, but now I think 
now I think that we're in a very interesting place. I mean, I think that was happening in, in, in football specifically, and then we'll see what happens in basketball, you know, is a, is a signifier. And if, if athletes, uh, who to a great extent, as you point out, are among our most conservative workers, you know, I mean, they have a very short shelf life. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them have been waved through the toll booths of life since they're 12 years old, you know, concentrating on their, on their sports. They have kind of very narrow focus. And it's really only now that there seems to be this broad-based swell within sports led by, you know, just a few athletes um, and, and the, you know, people – you, you, have, you really need to look at Michael Bennett, a football player on the Seattle Seahawks, is really coming forward as a strong voice. Uh, LeBron James, arguably the greatest player in basketball, is another possibly very strong voice. And if athletes get behind them, uh, we might really see something uh, which may or may not be co-opted uh, by by Donald Trump and by the owners and by the leagues. Uh, basketball will be very interesting because it's become such an international sport. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, protests will not have the same residence uh, that they have here. Um, well, um well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And each Sunday, I mean, this coming Sunday, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I was looking at... Uh, Even you will watch, right? <laughs> maybe see now. I will, because I'm politically oriented, uh, you know, what I, the sports I watch is... Um, the sport I watch is baseball. I watch baseball all the time for various reasons. I like it because it's more like a chess game and it's slow and I'm interested and I grew up with it more than anything else. But... Uh, Typically, you know, one of the uh, announcers on the Yankees, the Yankees are more conservative than some of the other teams, right? They're the ones who started playing um, God Bless America in the seventh inning. And, you know, they make, they make a very big deal out of that Yankee Stadium. But um, it has a lot to do with 9-11, too, I think. But uh, they announced just sort of casually that we'd like to say hello at this time to uh, members of the armed forces, uh, and uh, the show is being uh, broadcast, this, this sh- the game, the show, is being broadcast to, uh, to members of the armed forces in all, in 147 different countries and uh, naval ships at sea. And I'm thinking to myself, now there's something. What are we doing in 147 different countries? Wow. But to them, it's... Yes. Well, that, that's a wonderful point. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, we know. really need to know more about, you know, are, are we doing a lot of commando actions in a lot of places we don't know about? But at least they're being entertained by, uh, by a sports broadcast. Well, anyhow, we'll see what happens. Uh, I mean, what do you think? Well, ba- baseball, Mike, is really interesting because uh, there's an enormous uh, number of foreign born uh, foreign citizens playing baseball. Yeah. Uh, you know, Latin, Latins, uh, a lot of Japanese now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I wonder what it would be like in a Major League Baseball clubhouse. You know, you wouldn't really have the same feeling, plus the fact that uh, there's a very small percentage of African Americans who are playing baseball now. I think it's, you know, it's, it's amazingly, it's down to 8% or something. So there, there really isn't that kind uh, right. of political groundswell. So, I, you know, I, I think we can forget about baseball for the moment. But football and basketball, I, I think that's where it's going to happen. 
So uh, what do you think, uh, finally, uh, by the way, you've been listening to uh, Robert uh, Lipsight, a longtime um, sports writer, novelist. Uh, and so what is it called? Young adult novels, right, that you write? Is it young adult novels? Yeah. yeah. Pardon me? Uh, you write young adult novels as well. as. Yes, I do. Yeah. And, and many of them, many of them have sports backgrounds. I mean, it's a, I think it's a, it's a wonderful way to get, you know, boys mm-hmm. uh, involved in reading is if they think they're, uh, they're reading about sports. The, the novels tend to be political, too. And I, I think that um, one of the things that I find really interesting, I, I go to high schools and, and, and talk to kids who are reading these books, including football players, uh, and, and there is a kind of growing awareness. Uh, first, uh, you know, the fear of uh, brain injury is beginning to seep into younger minds here, but also the idea of uh, among black players, you know, just what is happening here and what is our role. And I think that, um, you know, the, the racism uh, of, of what's happening in these protests, the racism that uh, Trump is manipulating oh, yeah. and using uh, that the leagues themselves are going to have to deal with are really the kind of uh, the critical, the turning point, if you will, uh, of, of what's going to happen. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I, I hope so. And I see to me, it seems like it's inevitable that it's going to happen that way. Um, so as far as these protests go, the football protests, you expect them to go on week after week or do you expect them to peter out? I mean, uh, how long will the owners? I, I don't know. The owners I mean, that, are, you know, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the big question. I mean, it's, I'm certainly holding my breath on it. Uh, the idea of really whether uh, it's going to be a one-off, whether it's going to be co-opted, whether it's going to you know settle down as as of course the, the season continues and people get you know really very interested in trying to win mm-hmm. uh, and make more money uh, and resolve their own contractual difficulties, uh, or or whether it's really going to spread. I think that has a lot to do with the response, the response by fans, the response by everyday citizens of how much support these athletes can see in their community. Uh, if, if they, they begin to see that they're being booed, if the community turns the back, if people really do burn jerseys and tickets, as you say, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I think it, it could be a failure. Well, uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's uh, something to follow. Um, Well, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Well, if nothing else, if it gets you to watch a couple of football games, <laughs> well, I mean, oh, uh, let, I, let I me, think it'll be a success. How do uh, how do people uh, find out more about uh, the books you've written and about you about your memoir and everything? Uh, where do they go to uh, to find it? Uh, or they could go to robertlipsite.com. Okay, Robert Lipsite. Well, they could Google me, right? L-I-P-S-Y-T-E. Thank you very much. Correct, yes. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Uh, We'll be back in a little bit, but first, uh, let us all stand for the uh, National Anthem.
I got to say, that is really stirring. Is it my generation? There's nothing inherent about that. Um, there's a lot of national anthems, and some of them are a lot more stirring than others. Um, um, I don't know what the, what's it called, the International, the Russians, uh, the Marseillaise, French, and maybe some others. Most national anthems sound extremely boring and uh, Somewhat military, of course, as usual. Um, but some of them are really, really stirring, especially if you know the background of them. But I was brought up on the national anthem. I mean, uh, we, we uh, stood for it and we sang it in the, um, sometimes in the school auditorium. And I was a member of the Boy Scouts. I was, you know, after World War II, the, the Memorial Day, they played it. And veterans uh, would stand there with their hands on their hearts and tears coming out of their eyes. And um, I, even to this day, when I hear it, it's so stirring. And I remember how it tore everybody apart, how it tore me apart, and how I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what to do, and I was just torn in half. When during Vietnam, when my country was acting so shamefully and doing, I mean, obviously they had done so many things before that, but we weren't all aware of it so much. Now we are far more aware of it, but especially in Vietnam, where we were just beating up on, uh, on this uh, country for all sorts of reasons that had nothing to do with goodness, morality, uh, you know, American values. I mean, all bullshit. It was really extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And a lot of people uh, were turned off to the Star Spangled Banner. A lot of people felt it was a, almost a, a song or a symbol of, uh, of um, imperialism, of murder, of... Uh, of uh, racism, you name it, the Star Spangled Banner. And yet, you know, it's funny, maybe because I'm, you know, of an age, it inculcates all that. Meanwhile, Trump Trump jumps in, and um, like uh, Bob Lipsight said before, he has this genius. He uh, actually, one of the tweets, one of the millions of tweets he sent out the other day in his bird brain, he sent out a tweet that said, bad ratings, bad ratings. He knows about ratings. He's, that's what he's really good at. And every time he wants to raise his ratings, he goes to one of these places where he knows he's going to get people cheering him. He wouldn't dare show up in a place. I mean, a lot of people don't do that, but he wouldn't dare show his face anywhere near a crowd that, uh, that was in favor of what these protests were or in any way uh, disapproved or didn't like him, Trump. 
But uh, meanwhile, let's let's hear Trump again, and then maybe we'll go to another uh, more um, apropos version of the Star Spangled Banner, which became very popular um, in the 60s. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! Yeah, USA Uberalis. It's absolutely frightening that this insane, vicious clown is running our country. Anyhow, let's uh, let's hear another version of the national anthem. A lot of us in the '60s uh, found that was more appropriate to how we felt and what the country was going through. It's upsetting. It pisses you off to hear that. Just, you know, it's upsetting. It's discordant. The, uh, the ear and the brain uh, finds, itself, uh, finds itself upset by, uh, by that kind of thing. And it is a protest. I mean, would that it was all so simple. I grew up with it. I liked it. I liked the Star Spangled Banner. I guess it still gets to me. But we needed to hear Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner in those days. We needed to hear that. Um, it was something important for all of us. What will happen, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I think since sports is such a big business, uh, the NFL, uh, tens and tens of billions of dollars. And uh, people, a lot of people um, maybe who aren't politically oriented or people who are... Um, uh, not sympathetic with uh, with any with Black Lives Matter or whatever. They're all going to say, 
Same old story. And I've said it before about uh, baseball and sports. You know, when people are, are, um, are act dissatisfied, the first thing you think of is, well, you're getting millions of dollars. You don't have any education to speak of or not a very good one. You're getting millions of dollars. I get paid. You know, I work all the time. I work like a dog. I work my nine to five, whatever it is, and I make 50, 60, 1,000 if I'm lucky. Meanwhile, you guys, you know, you're making a million, two million, ten million dollars a year. Shut up, you know. And it's a victimless crime. You said, "What? You get a concussion? You didn't know you might get a concussion by smashing your head into somebody else, especially somebody else's helmet, uh, week after week in practice and on the field, you know." And give me a break. Life is so hard. I mean, the world is blowing up. Uh, there's. Um, you know, the, the earth is uh, cracking open. I mean, there are wars everywhere. There are plagues. There are famines. There are droughts. There are giant tidal waves. There are hurricanes. I just want to tune in and watch something entertaining. I want to see the beauty and the purity and the achievement of just pure sports. I don't want to hear it. Well, I understand. Sometimes you just don't want to hear it. But sometimes you do have to hear it. Meanwhile, uh, let us move on. To something else, I talked about this last May, but uh, the um, continuing saga of Anthony Weiner continues. There's a man who leads a life of danger. To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. Secret agent man, secret agent man. They've given you a number and taken away your name. Yeah, Carlos Danger, which was uh, <clears throat> poor Anthony Weiner. I know some people don't think it's poor Anthony Weiner at all. I was talking to my daughter on the phone the other night and uh, talking to her about uh, what I'm going to be speaking about here is that Anthony Weiner has been sentenced finally. He was found guilty last spring of sexting with uh, an underage girl, underage woman. And um, he was sentenced the other day, and they're sending the guy to prison for 21 months. And um, to me, and maybe there's a lot, this is very complicated and partially psychological. There's a lot of personal identification with this guy. I find his case tragic. A lot of other people find it. um, So what? Here's an arrogant son of a bitch. Here's a guy who let down his constituents who may have helped to lose the election for Hillary Clinton by his uh, bizarre behavior and his connection to her right-hand woman. Uh, Huma Abedin, uh, Anthony Weiner's wife, uh, is uh, Hillary Clinton's, uh, was, I don't know if she still is, Hillary Clinton's longtime closest political advisor, and uh, they were close friends and uh, political confidants. Uh, Weiner, you know, um, screwed up. The man screwed up, and he kept, he has a, he has a sex addiction, and he kept um, sexting with all these different women. He was caught a couple of times. He was exposed a couple of times. You should pardon the word exposed. And uh, he swore he would never do it again, swore to his wife. He's got a little kid, right? 
Uh, he swore to everybody and his constituents. You know, he represented a certain um, um, district in New York City, a liberal district, and was one of the most liberal, outspoken, and brilliant members of Congress. Um, and he let down his constituents. Here's a guy like that. But personally, uh, more and more came out about him. And I knew, um, I know somebody who uh, was working at a, as a, in a political consultant firm in Washington. And there are occasions when, um, when Anthony Weiner uh, uh, used their services to help with policy research so that he could uh, give certain speeches or they wrote speeches for him. And they had interaction with people in his office. And uh, Weiner, it turns out, and most people know about this now, was an extremely arrogant, contemptuous, and insulting individual. He treated his staff like shit. And a lot of people hated him for his behavior. He really thought that he was better than everybody else. And it was not righteous grandiosity. You know, yes, he was smarter than almost anybody else in any room he was in. And um, he did have, you know, political um, aspirations. I think he ultimately maybe wanted to be senator or governor. That's what he was headed for. But he had this addiction. And who knows, right, from addictions? Who knows? But uh, uh, the other day, um, I'll read it here. Anthony Weiner, a former congressman and Merrill, Merrill candidate, arriving at federal court on Monday for sentencing. He uh, has been sentenced. He lost his seat in Congress. His audacious bid to resurrect his career as mayor of New York, he ran for mayor, and his high-profile marriage. And he undermined Hillary Clinton's shot, right, at the presidency in the closing days of the tumultuous 2016 campaign. Uh, on this past Monday, Anthony Weiner, sobbing as the judge spoke, learned that the final personal cost of his seemingly uncontrollable habit of exchanging lewd texts and pictures with women and girls, 21 months in prison. And um, it's, um, it's a complicated thing, but... Um, in the end, what happened really was that the man is the victim of an addiction. Some of you listening, I've been a victim of addictions in my life, and they were, they were very hard to break. Uh, maybe I'm still involved in some of them, and they're still hard to break. But, I mean, there, there were some real bad ones, and they were causing some trouble for not just me but other people who knew me. And they were hard to break. An addiction is uh, like a vice around your heart and around your head. You can't stop doing it. And this guy had an addiction. Oh, he's been in rehab for a long time. He goes to sex, uh, sex Addictions Anonymous or whatever it's called. And uh, he pleaded for uh, probation. And the judge could have given him probation. But um, he was not given probation. Uh, and uh, he, the judge said he was a victim. Wiener was a victim. And like I say, I do find it a tragic thing. Because this guy's going to go to prison, federal prison. No, where he goes, there's different kinds of federal prisoners, is, uh, prisons. There's a hard case federal prisons for the worst kinds of people, uh, people who you wouldn't want walking the streets no matter what for the next 50 years, and uh, a rough place to be, to say, to put it mildly. Then there's sort of middle-level prisons, and then there's, um, I think what they used to call country club prisons, but they're probably not so country club anymore, but ones where it's a lot milder, and they have various programs where they can treat people who need treatment. Uh, and, of course, there are millions of people, mostly black, uh, who are in jail for offenses um, that have to do a lot with them being black, you know, with, you know, with poverty, with uh, possessing a tiny amount of drugs or using a tiny amount of drugs or with some drug offense that they shouldn't even be in jail. And Obama pardoned a lot of people right before he left office. But here's this guy 
grows up middle class, uh, Jewish, you know, uh, you know, the smartest boy in the class in New York. Now he's going to go to jail. It's the last person in the world who ever imagined he'd be in jail or who could fend for himself in jail. So who knows what will happen to this guy? I don't know when he's going to jail. The Federal Bureau of Prisons uh, will send him wherever they want to. Nobody can have any influence except the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Nobody can tell him what to do. Um, and the judge said, uh, Wiener, uh, to sort of wrap it up, Wiener was the victim of his own compulsions and his own addiction. But he was also, and this is pure karma, the victim of his own fame. The judge made a point. The judge made a point of saying that she was, uh, you know, the uh, Wiener's uh, attorney said, no, I'll let him off. He's, uh, you know, he hasn't really hurt anybody. And she said, well, he violated the law. After all, the girl, he, uh, and this is not blaming the victim, but the girl that he was sexting with um, got in touch with him. I don't know what her problems are, but uh, it was soon after she got in touch with him or realized who he was. I don't know how that initiated that she got um, $30,000 from a British scandal sheet. So this is the modern world. This is Trump. This is uh, PR. This is superficiality. This is ratings. This is reality TV. Morality? Screw morality. There is no more morality anymore. Anyhow, Trump was sentenced, uh, rather, Wiener was sentenced, and the judge said, I'm sentencing you because, you know, she didn't say this in so many words, because of his notoriety, because... She said, this may set an example for other people because they looked up to you or because you were so important. So his fame sunk him, too. And this really qualifies as a, as a classic tragedy as far as I'm concerned. Anyhow, you know what? Let's skip the, uh, let's skip the secret agent, man, and um, let's just uh, wind up with our theme. Thanks for listening today. This is Mike Fader. This has been The Turning Point. And uh, I'm here every Friday at 10 a.m., uh, live on prn.fm, a very good radio station. Check out our programming. And uh, if you want to know more about me or get in touch with me, go to Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com. And I always appreciate your listening. And uh, yeah, get in touch with me. It does me good to know that you're listening. Thanks a lot.
somewhere down the road when somebody plays at the end of the line the purple haze well it's alright even when push comes to show well it's alright if you got someone to love well it's alright everything will work out fine well it's alright we're going to the end of the line don't have to be ashamed of the car I drive Just glad to be here, happy to feel that And it don't matter if you're by my side I'm satisfied Well, it's all 